My eyebrows look so good. They really do. I'm not kidding you. I'm going to get one of those beard and mustache dye kits to do mine, like, this weekend. You should, because y'all, listeners, many of y'all know, I have the blondest, palest, barely there eyebrows. I got one of those, my beard's turning gray, let me dye my beard, put it on my eyebrows, boom. Did you put some on your beard, too? No. Which I thought about because I have like eight gray hairs now. Past years have been, (laughs) my beard's starting to go gray. But anyways, back to my eyebrows. They look better than your eyes, at least. Not your eyebrows. Your eyebrows look great, but your eyes look terrifying. That's rude. Because they're full of blood. They're full of blood. (laughs) Okay. They're not full of blood. Also, number one, everyone's eyeballs are full of blood, but I I get what you're saying. No, um, yeah, okay, so I had some capillaries that burst blood vessels that, um, y'all, I got LASIK last week. <laughs> okay, but you, you have, like, full stigmata eyes going on. <laughs> okay, it's better than it was last week, you can't deny that. No, that is true, that is true. They were and straight up scary. They, I, y'all, what I'm telling you, it was like half of each eye was just <laughs> red, and I've never, like, I know you can burst a blood vessel in your eye if you, like... I don't know, sneeze really hard. I don't know. Get Probably get hit. Probably not <laughs> That's a really intense sneeze. A- allergies, man. But I don't think I've ever seen someone with like that. But yeah. But now Brittany has fixed eyes. I do. I can see. It's amazing, y'all. I will say if you have the opportunity, do it. It is so, so worth it. I just, like, I literally sat down and did the math of how much I was spending on glasses and contacts and multiplied that for even just 20 more years. And I was like, oh my god, I'm getting LASIK. This is insane. Yeah, it's really made me want to get LASIK too, because I just... Bothering with contacts and glasses, who needs them? (laughs) (laughs) No, but now that you have eyes that aren't broken... I have something for you to watch. That's, number one, rude. My eyes weren't broken. They just needed assistance. They needed fixing, which <laughs> implies they were broken. <laughs> okay, but um, what should I watch? So it's this documentary on Netflix. Listeners, some of y'all have probably watched it before, uh, but my coworker was telling me about it. And it's called Why Did You Kill Me? So this woman is, like, murdered by gang people. Like, they think she's in a rival gang. She's not. She gets murdered by them. And the police are just, like, not finding anything. They're being oh. stonewalled, like, at every turn. So a family member of the woman who was murdered decides, you know what? I'm going to solve my family member's murder. Here's the thing, though. The girl investigating is 13 years old. Oh my god. She gets on MySpace and, like, makes a fake profile and pretends to be, like, another gang member, infiltrates the gang, gains their trust, and they, like, confess and tell her the things. 13-year-old fucking catfishing gang members to solve her family member's murder. Are you kidding me? So it was solved because of her work on MySpace? I think it was solved. Actually, yeah, they made a documentary about it and said all these things. So, yes, (laughs) I haven't watched the documentary yet. Dude, this is why I'm just saying don't underestimate kids. They're smart. 
I know. I mean, shit, you see all the time about the kids that they're like, this 12-year-old for their school science fair project created clean energy out of, I don't know, trash. I know. And it's amazing. I don't know. Sometimes I feel like the things that could be accomplished if kids were taken more seriously. You know what I did when I was 13? What? Do you even know what you did when you were 13? I don't know. Probably shoplifted those little enamel pins from Hot Topic. (laughs) And by probably, I mean yes. But statute of limitations, I guess. <laughs> I know, as I would say, are you, you confessing to this? <laughs> no, allegedly. Allegedly that happened. It may have been a dream. It was probably a dream. Probably. Anywho. Well. Hello, everyone. Hello. I don't say that. Brittany does. <laughs> this is Blood and Wine. I'm Brittany. And I'm Tyler. And we just want to start off before we jump into this episode with a huge thank you. You guys, it's meant so much. All the support that we've seen in the last couple of weeks since our announcement that we have this episode and one more. Because we're not going to lie. We were definitely pretty nervous to tell you guys. We didn't know. Mm -hmm. We didn't know how that was going to pan out. But we should have because y'all have always been so supportive and showing us so much love. So we should have known that y'all would respond and completely understand that sometimes it's just time to time to step away. Yeah. I mean, y'all have always been there for us. So it's just it's just so amazing to see the response. It is. It is. We see all of your messages and we appreciate it all and we love each and every one of you. Yes, we do. I do also want to welcome a few people who have joined the family in the last couple of months on Patreon. So welcome to the Blood and Wine family, Alexis McKelvey, Madalena Spataru, and Sarah Schaubert. Welcome, you guys. We're so glad to have you as a part of the family. Yes, thank y'all so much and welcome. Uh, We hope y'all are diving through our treasure trove of murder minis and enjoying Patreon. Yes, and those are still going to be there. We're not getting rid of the murder minis. Um, Patreon's going to still be up. So if you want to go check out those murder minis, definitely do. Yes. Also, can I just say for a moment, this episode 150. I cannot believe it. 150. (laughs) The same number of Pokemon. There's 150 Pokemon? I thought there were more. I mean, 150 was like how many were introduced. Now there's like (laughs) a thousand. And you know every single one of them by name? No, but I used to know the poker rap, which was all 150. That's um like the state song and the president song, but Pokemon. You know, I never had to learn the uh, state song. Oh, yeah. It and goes... then every time... Yeah, I know, because I... Oh. <laughs> <And> <laughs> literally when I say that, everyone around me is like, really? Alabama and Alaska... No, Arkansas. You don't know Wait. it. Oh my god. No, I, clearly. <laughs> it's Alabama, Alabama and, Alaska, Arizona, Arkansas, California, Colorado, Connecticut, Delaware, Florida, Georgia, Hawaii, Idaho. I, that's that's not the t- the tune most people sing it to me. Okay, well, also I'm older than your friends. So, thanks for pointing that out, but I hope I got that part right and didn't miss a big chunk of states. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't added a new state in like 70 years. I don't think the song has changed. Okay. Well, whatever. I don't know why you're like making me feel like I'm wrong when you don't even know this the state song. So I'm who's wrong say- here? It's not me. <laughs> I'm just- 
I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm saying you're different. <laughs> I mean, that's damn right. And I am proud of it. But you know this what? This is my fight song. Okay. <laughs> what? We're going to fight over the state song? That's our fight song? Oh, my God. <laughs> so, one, no, we're not going to fight about it. But, two, can you imagine a school's fight song being like, Alabama and Alaska. <laughs> that was that was me trying to be a crowd. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, it's time to get to the important parts of this episode. Because yes, this, yes. this is a very important and i mean all of them are but we're definitely bringing it and we've got a patreon pick for you guys today from one of our blood and wide family members Catherine, and this is one that we've talked with her back and forth for a little bit and it's great to have one of our last episodes be directed by one of our blood and wine family members yes so Catherine sent us this case and it's the murder of tracy latimer And she was a Canadian girl who was 12, and she had pretty severe cerebral palsy. And her murderer was actually her father. And he did it as a mercy killing. And this is a really, really controversial case because he was convicted. He was sentenced to life imprisonment with 10 years without parole. And he's actually been released on parole as of 2010. And... With this case, it brings up a lot of really difficult conversations. Yeah. And stuff that I think can kind of edge out of true crime. Because while this case, I mean, is definitely a murder. It's a murder. I mean, he murdered his daughter. Yes. Regardless of his reasonings, because that's that's not a mindset I could ever get myself into. Um, Same. I've never had a child, let alone a child with um, severe and limiting disabilities. I can't, I can't imagine anything about that. But through all of that, this is murder. But it does bring up the topic, um, or at least it's very close to the topic of legal euthanasia, which is something I agree with and don't think falls under the umbrella of true crime at all. But I also know it's a really difficult conversation. Well, and euthanasia is not something that's performed by the parent of a patient. Exactly. It's done by a doctor. And with the express consent of the person who it's being done to. You know, you think people with severe terminal cancer who don't want to live out the rest of their life in pain deciding this with their doctor. It's not something a parent or anyone decides for someone else. Exactly. And that is one of the big distinguishing factors why Tyler and I look at Tracy Latimer's case as a murder. Her father, Robert, murdered her. And I think him being convicted was absolutely the way that that should have gone down. And from this case, Brittany and I had a lot of discussions about what we wanted the topic to be in this episode. Yes. Because mercy killings or is also known as euthanasia is not really crime this doesn't really fall under that he says you know her father says his motive was a mercy killing but the general definition of mercy killing i think is often a lot more times medical euthanasia yes and honestly we both really wanted to be very cognizant to not speak about medical euthanasia 
under the lens of true crime exactly. because they're very very different things and so we we talked a lot about you know where did we want to take this what were some of the aspects of this case that Catherine brought to us that we really wanted to bring to y'all and what came up is actually a topic that we've talked about off and on i think for almost the entire podcast it was one of the topics yeah that Brittany and I spoke about back when we made our original topic list, like when we were deciding episodes one and two, we made a list of probably eight to 10 <laughs> topic ideas. And this was one that we have not yet done for various reasons, but I think really fits perfectly in today's episode. Yes. So we will be talking about Angels of Death. Because while most angel of death cases and people who are referred to as an angel of death are in the medical field, we've talked about what was the nurse that you did in one of our very first episodes? It was Janine Jones? Yes. Yeah. yeah in Bear County. In Bear County. <laughs> she was an angel of death. And so while normally, like I was saying, angels of death are medical professionals, in a way, Robert was seeing himself as Tracy's angel of death. Although, as we'll go into the details of our cases, the angels of death who are doctors generally don't have very pure reasons. Um, and I think Robert did. Does that make sense? Like, yeah. still absolutely murder, but he was doing it for his daughter's life because she was in so much pain. But it was not his decision to make, and he made it anyway. Mm -hmm. No, and oftentimes that like prototypical angel of death, their motives are usually either wanting notoriety, wanting to be the hero, or trying to save all these sick people by making them sick and, you know, killing a bunch of them, or by getting that sympathy, but sometimes also in their mind as a way to, you know, end people's suffering by murdering a lot of people. And sometimes they're just a straight up serial killer. That's true. So before we jump into our cases, it is wine time. Tyler. Wine o'clock. It's wine o'clock. Wine o'clock was actually like five hours ago, but we're just not getting oh to it. Oh my God. <laughs> I was working five hours. Like, but you know what? You're right. You're right. <laughs> I mean, I was also working at that time. It doesn't mean I didn't, you know, wasn't waiting for the moment where we can open this wine. Tyler, what wine are you opening today? And drinking. Opening and drinking. <laughs> yes, I will be doing both. So the wine I'm drinking today, my, a penultimate wine. Oh, God. Is this right? is our penultimate episode. We, we should have said that at the top. Well, we're saying it now. This is the 2019 Sunseeker Rosé from California. And Brittany, when I show you the bottle, you'll understand why I picked it. Look at this. Shut up. That's gorgeous. Right? So it is this, like, ombre glass bottle. At the bottom, it starts clear, and it's red glass at the top, and it's ombre And, like, the label is engraved in white in the bottle. Super pretty. Also a twist off. And it was, like, $12, $13. You know, I'm interested to see what that bottle looks like empty, because that is a really cool bottle, and that would look awesome with, like, some fake flowers in it. Right? I almost wish it wasn't engraved so I could take the label off. 
Anywho, so this wine is described, it's a rosé, it's from California. It's described with vibrant hints of raspberry and strawberry that lead to a bright, crisp finish. But another thing I really liked on their website is they went into the different grape varietals that are in it and why they're in it, which I feel like most rosés, you don't know what grapes are in it. It's just Not a lot of blanket rosé. Yeah. So they said they crafted the Sunseeker using Grenache to highlight its red apple characteristics, Syrah and Pinot Noir to give the delicate hints of watermelon, strawberry, and some floral notes, and then just a touch of Sangiovese to give a bright red fruit and some notes of raspberry. This sounds so good. I mean, it sounds like the perfect summer rosé. Yes, it does. And y'all... I know it's May. In Texas, May is summer. Summer's here already. It's pool weather. It's snow in other places, but dear God, <laughs> no, we're just burning here. Also, it's a twist off. It honestly looks like juice. Like if I saw this and it wasn't wine bottle shaped, I would assume it's like, oh, that's like a rich people like watermelon and mango infused water or something what is it when you put a bit of grenadine in your mimosa or pomegranate juice in your mimosa um i don't know trash (laughs) no (laughs) it's called Uh, no it's not because i love that i don't know all i'm thinking of is tequila sunrise but also kind of looks like that okay i will say i'm a little will you i'm a little surprised you picked a rosé as your penultimate wine I wanted it. That's fair. It's gorgeous. It's And I haven't done a rosé in quite some time. It's actually a little orange. It is. It's a very peachy rosé. What do you smell? Oh, it smells good. A little bit of floral. Berry. Honestly, like lingonberry. What is that? It's a like a Norwegian and Swedish little red berry. It's that red jam from Ikea that I have in my fridge. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's that. Which is why I'm very familiar with it. Fair. But yeah, that's kind of what I'm getting. Okay. Ooh, I'm excited. I'm going to let that not aerate, just get warm while you <laughs> tell me what wine you're drinking today. I will be having The Grounded by Josh Phelps. It's their 2018 Cabernet Sauvignon from California. This is one that's $15 at Target. And it's not a Target wine. That's just where I happen to find it. It's 90% Cabernet Sauvignon from the north and central coast and 10% Merlot from Rutherford and Napa Valley. This particular year, the 2018, it's a very vibrant and balanced cab that does reflect the really warm and long growing season that these grapes were grown in. It's a red garnet color with aromas of fresh cherry, raspberry, and blackberry. And Mm. so... This wine is like immediately delicious as soon as you take a sip. It also has well-integrated oak to enhance the polished tannins. This cab is very well-balanced with a luxurious texture that extends throughout the long, aromatic finish. Obviously, I got some of this from the website because um, I don't talk like that, but that sounds really good. This wine sounds Mm -hmm. really, really good. And so I also took a note from Tyler, and I wanted to look at some of people's reviews. So people are saying this is bold, dry, it has medium tannins and medium acidity. 
They noted the cherry, the oak, but also some leather, earth, and smoke. So I'm really pumped. Leather, earth, and smoke is like... A band. I was gonna say like my future husband. (laughs) Old... He um, is a gardener, he, he, like an, and he smokes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like a 90-year-old, like, sun-leathered skin man from Florida who smokes cigars and just always has dirt under his fingernails. <laughs> You've never seen him in the garden. Just always dirt there. But he's rich. And I mean rich. <laughs> like three yachts. And I'm just waiting because he doesn't believe in prenups. And I'm waiting because I'm, like, a good person. I don't murder Honestly, I'm providing companionship. I should be lauded as a hero and compensated as such. I think you're talking about my husband, not yours. You can have his equally rich twin brother. Great. It's a deal and awkward. So (laughs) (laughs) as far as ratings, people basically rate this one a 3.8 out of 5. There were a lot of of four-star reviews. 3.8 is not bad, man. Yeah. I mean, it's a C. No, it's a C plus. Yeah, that's still a C. <laughs> so one of the things that I did come across a lot, the bottle itself does look very generic. It's this plain white label with like maroon font, but it's a hidden gem. Oh. I, when I was, I'm showing Tyler the label, I looked past this one over and over And I saw it and I was like, you know what? I mean, that one sounds good. It sounds like, you know, grounded by Josh Phelps. Like that sounds important. And so I was like, I've never had this one. And I was looking for a California cab. Grounded by Josh Phelps. That sounds like you're like, oh my God, this new song came on my Spotify. It's (laughs) grounded by Josh Phelps. And I'm like, oh, okay. Sounds like kind of an alt rock kind of rando. It does. Like, is he a backup singer for Imagine Dragons? Probably. Probably is exactly right. And that is hilarious. And now I want to go find a song called Grounded and listen to it because, yeah. Okay. Uh, that was a very successful. I'm almost done opening it. That was kind of a weak pop, but. A little bit. Oh, that's dark. Wow. The aromas. There's a lot of them. <laughs> Me when I walk <laughs> by a frat house. Wow. <laughs> The aromas. There's a lot of them. <laughs> I was thinking when I walked by a locker room. Oh, okay. Similar vibe. Yeah. Basically, men stink. We do. <laughs> I'm like, deny it. Deny it. Although, I'm glad I work out at home alone because I reek after a good workout. Well, while we're talking about body odor, why don't you describe what you smell <laughs> in your wine? <laughs> I'm not smelling body odor. There's a lot of cherry and blackberry going on. I have, it's a, it's a very fruit forward aroma. I'm not smelling the oak, leather, earthy smoke, any of that, which I still think sounds like ban. <laughs> earth, leather, like it's, it's not what earth, wind and fire. <laughs> right. It's oak, leather, earthy, earth and smoke. There's four oak, of them. Oak, leather. Can I be oak? <laughs> <laughs> Guys, Blood and Wine, it's our new band. Oh, glad got two open spots. But I really think those flavors are going to be flavors that I taste, not ones that I smell. But I'm really looking forward to trying this wine. I'm excited. Good. All right. Now that we both have our wines, mine is sufficiently warmed up now. Damn it, Tyler. I forgot. I brought the aerator. I brought it and I forgot to put it in. 
you messed up. I did. I also messed up our cheers. I mean, I'm putting it in right now while I'm thinking about it. Okay, now. Cheers. Cheers. I was not expecting this. Is yours gross? No. There is no sweetness. Oh, like, like it's just dry as dry can be? Yeah. That's but not... But it's not super acidic for up front. Oh. Which, like, it's not sweet in the way of, like, this is going to be a super gross example, but, like, when you brush your teeth and drink orange juice and it's just devoid of any sweet and it's, like, surprising... That, but not gross. Well, I've never... orange juice tastes... I've, you've never... I've never done it. You're not supposed to. Well, orange juice devoid of any sweetness is not good. This is good. I'm just really surprised because I feel like all rosés I've ever had before have a tiny bit of sweetness. Like, just enough to make the fruit flavor stand out. That They're, like, fruity. There are some French rosés that are super super dry what it seems like this one is but yeah but those generally are like very acidic they are yes that is one of the differences so this one is dry but not acidic and not sweet is it fruity it's very floral that's awesome and a little bit where's it from? a little california that really surprises me that's yeah. that dry that's what it is okay y'all i um Went to reviews because I was just very surprised by this wine. And this person mentions it's mineral with rose petal and celery. And that's, yeah. It's like that almost bitter. Roses and celery? Yeah. Is that not your, like, favorite afternoon snack? Well, I like celery and peanut butter. Celery's fucking gross. But as hints of it in wine, that bitterness is really nice. It's very summery. Like, this is a really, really perfect summer wine. I really want to try this wine. You got it at H-E-B? Yeah, grocery store, 13 bucks. We need to make sure and get that next time I visit, or bring it next time you visit. I'm not going to remember that, but okay. I I know you won't. (laughs) But okay, what about yours? Oh my god, It, it is beautiful it's beautiful it's everything you expect in a california cab it's smooth it's oaky but not too oaky like i'm not tasting butter or anything like that like it's not that kind of oaky like it's not heavy on my tongue i'm picking up on the tobacco and the leather i'm not really getting a lot of smoke and very subtle earth oh my god yeah the leather and maybe i am getting hints of that smoke but Y'all, this is a delicious, delicious cab, which for me, when I pay $15, I expect it to be a delicious, delicious cab. It is far superior than some of the $10 ones, I will say. Me, when I'm in New York City hailing a car and the Escalade pulls up, it's a delicious cab. (laughs) Much better than the $10 ones I've had. Oh my god, but it'll cost you. All right, well, Tyler... (laughs) (laughs) On that note. (laughs) On that note, we have our wines. We've talked about our topic. Tyler, tell me about your angel of death case. What one did you pick? So my case is the murderer, Charles Cullen, the angel of death. Is he actually the angel of death? Because I feel like a lot of them are the angel of death. 
A lot of them are. He's one of them. One of the angels of death. So the sources I used, his article on Wikipedia, as well as his article on Murderpedia. So Charles Cullen was born in West Orange, New Jersey in 1960, and he was the last of eight children. Was that West Orange in The Great Gats? No, that was like West Egg. It was West Egg. Also, your dude is like way more recent than I thought. Uh, same. When I was reading this case, I was assuming like this all happened in the 60s. Nope, that's when he was born. His childhood was described as miserable. He was constantly bullied by his sister's boyfriends and his schoolmates. And when he was just nine years old, he made his first of many suicide attempts by drinking chemicals from a chemistry set. Oh, Jesus. In the fourth grade. When he was a senior in high school, his mom was killed in a car accident. And he said his mother's death was very devastating. And part of that was because not only was she killed, but the hospital wouldn't return her body to him, to the family. So he didn't get to, like, see her. Why? She was, well, she was cremated. Oh. And I think this uh, is going to come into play with uh, some of his murders and stuff. Nothing ever outright said it, but uh, I'm I'm going to take the logical leap. The next year after his mom died, Charles dropped out of school and enlisted in the Navy. Then in 1984, he got a medical discharge from the Navy. The reasons were undisclosed. But afterwards, he enrolled in the Mountainside Hospital School of Nursing in Montclair, New Jersey. He was even elected president of his nursing class. Like, he was a good student. And he graduated in 1986 and pretty immediately started working in the burn unit of St. Barnabas Medical Center in Livingston, New Jersey. During that time, he met and married his wife, Adrienne Baum. They had a daughter named Shauna, who was born later that year. But his wife started to become really increasingly disturbed about him and his unusual behavior and his abuse of the family dogs. Oh my god, no. Is he experimenting on the dogs? I don't know, because that's all that it really said about the dogs. I don't like this at all. Me neither. His first murders that we know of occurred at St. Barnabas. On June 11th of 1988, Colin administered a lethal overdose of IV medication to a patient, and he would go on to kill several other patients at St. Barnabas, including a patient who had AIDS, who died after being given an overdose of insulin. In January of 1992, Cullen left St. Barnabas when the hospital authorities they started investigating who had contaminated these IV bags. Because I guess they found some that were contaminated, and they were starting to look. So he was like, oh, I'm out. And the investigation went on to determine that he had most likely been responsible and had resulted in dozens of patient deaths at the hospital. But I don't know the timeline of when they realized it was him, unless it was much, much later. They uh, didn't do anything about it. I think it's really, really difficult. I know it's really difficult to convict a doctor of murdering patients. And so I would imagine it's difficult to convict, like, and by convict, I guess, I mean, accuse, Mm -hmm. accuse and then convict, maybe even a nurse as well. Because if you think about 
Dr. Death with Chris Dunch. And that's the case that we've talked about how he was a surgeon who somehow got through med school without actually knowing how to perform surgery, but he was acting like he knew what he was doing, and he was a neurosurgeon. Blows my damn mind. Same. But because of how difficult it is to actually accuse a doctor of malpractice like this, he went on performing surgeries for a long time and has a list of victims, both living with permanent injuries and deceased. And so knowing there's an amazing, an amazing Wondery podcast, Dr. Death. I'm sure a lot of our listeners have listened to it. Tyler, I still like really recommend it because it's crazy. And what freaks me out so much, you guys, is uh, it's here in Dallas. It's crazy because it's not so far from my reality. Anyway, highly recommend that podcast if you haven't listened to it. But one of the things I learned through it is just how difficult it is because he was one of the first doctors that was actually charged with murder of his patients. It's different. He wasn't an angel of death in the sense that he was poisoning his patients, but he was an angel of death in a way because he didn't know what the fuck he was doing. And so he's just messing with people's spinal cords. Jesus. Yeah. So I say all of that to say, I wouldn't be surprised if they really didn't take it further because they may have, you know, the contamination stopped after he left and they could connect the dots, but they didn't have any proof it was actually him. So how do you move forward with that? You don't really. Fair. Yeah. So one month after leaving St. Barnabas, Cullen got a job at Warren Hospital in Phillipsburg, New Jersey. And there he murdered three elderly women with overdoses of a heart medication, digoxin, which I know I've said before. I know I've talked about the drug digoxin before being used to kill. When I was researching this and got to that line, I actually went through our past cases to be like, did I do this and block it out? Nope. Just you've talked about that medication? I don't know what case it was in the past. Listeners, some of y'all might know. Um, Probably Janine Jones, honestly. Probably. I mean, that was the last angel of death that you did. I don't think we've had another one besides her. I don't think so. Because I had the hospital in New Orleans where they were, you know, murdering their patients uh, post-Katrina. But that was, that might have been it, actually. But I feel like that was morphine. I feel like they overdosed them on morphine. I don't know. His final victim, though actually was able to talk to some people before she succumbed to the poison. And she said that a sneaky male nurse had injected her while she was sleeping. Oh my God. But While she was asleep? Yeah, but family members and the other healthcare providers at the hospital, they dismissed her comments. She's very old. She doesn't know. I'm sure a nurse did come in and give her her medicine. I hate how... Easily, I could see that being that happening and that being said. Yeah. The following year, Cullen moved into a basement apartment in Phillipsburg because he and his wife were going through a pretty contentious divorce. He got shared custody of his daughter. And in 1993, he actually said he wanted to quit nursing, but he now had court ordered child support payments that forced him to continue working. So his murder spree continued. That sounds like a cop-out to me. Like, oh, well, I was going to stop early on, but, you know, she divorced me, so I had to. 
it does. Like, how are you going to come up with a reason to be murdering people and think it's just at all? Exactly. So in March of 1993, Colin actually broke into a co-worker's home while she and her young son were sleeping, but he left without waking them up. Then he started stalking this woman. She wound up filing a police report against him, and he pled guilty to trespassing, and he got one year of probation. The day after he was arrested, he attempted suicide again. He wound up taking two months off of work and was treated for depression at two different psychiatric facilities. But before the end of 1993, he would attempt suicide two more times. Jeez. In September of 93, a 91-year-old cancer patient reported that Colin, who was not her assigned nurse, had come into her room and injected her with a needle. She died the next day. Her son actually brought this up and said, like, you know, her death was not natural. So I guess this is after his two months off and he came back to work? Yes, I think so. Okay. But this woman's son, she's like, no, 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 no. Someone killed my mom. And the Warren Hospital actually administered a lie detector test to Colin and to several other nurses. Whoa. But Colin passed. Well, that's because we know lie detester, lie detesters. <laughs> <laughs> lie- I detest liars. <laughs> we know that lie detector tests are, they you can pass them if you're good, if you're a psychopath. Like, there are plenty of ways to pass one. Y'all, I'm not yeah. saying you should try to pass one. I also hope no one listening has to take one because I feel like my heart would be racing the entire time, even though I know, like, it, it's just, it's like a scare tactic now. I mean, I kind of want to take one, like, but go to one of those, like, facilities that you can, like, oh, I want to give my boyfriend a liar detector test for YouTube. You know, stuff like that. But I want to take one and be like, I'm a 36-foot-tall blue platypus. Platypus? Platypus. How do you pronounce? Platypus. Platypus. No. (laughs) Platypus. It sounds kind of dirty. Okay, platypus. There you go. You got it. Good job, Tyler. Uh, Do you want a gold star? I I learn every day. (laughs) But yeah, I want to go and just see. Because, I don't know. I know, obviously, the point is it's high intensity and you're like, (laughs) but is it going to notice if I'm, but if they're like, is your name Tyler? And I'm like, no. I. What's it going to do? I don't think it's just... I don't think it's just, like, the high intensity. I think there is more about it of how they, like, determine. Anyways, Colin continued to work at Warren Hospital until the following spring. Then he began a three-year stint at the intensive care and cardiac care unit of Hunterton Medical Center in Flemington, New Jersey. A lot of New Jersey hospitals. He's just kind of ping-ponging between them. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. He murdered at least five patients between January and September of 1996, and again, this was with overdoses of digoxin. He then found work at Morristown Memorial Hospital, but pretty soon he was fired for poor performance. Oh, even though at the beginning he was like one of the best of the best? Yeah. He remained unemployed for about six months and at that time stopped making child support payments. He again sought treatment for depression at the Warren Hospital emergency room, so the emergency room of the hospital he used to work in, and he was actually admitted to another psychiatric facility for a short time. 
Then, in February of 1998, he was hired by the Liberty Nursing and Rehabilitation Center in Allentown, Pennsylvania. So he's moving out of New Jersey now. And there, he staffed a ward of respirator-dependent patients. Oh my god, that sounds like his demented playground. Yeah. At Liberty, he was actually accused of giving patients drugs at unscheduled times, and he was fired, actually, after being seen entering a patient's room with syringes in his hand. And this encounter, it left the patient with a broken arm, but without injections, and that's all it said, and I'm like- Did the patient fight back? I think this patient fought back, and I'm like, this is a patient on a respirator. Yeah, And they fought back and got their arm broken in the process, but they didn't get poisoned. They didn't get killed. I'm just so baffled that there have been so many moments where he's caught almost doing something. And it's like, you can tell he has the plan to do something and all they're doing is firing him, but someone else is hiring him. Like, oh, is he? I'll get into that. Okay, because I'm like, is he lying out of his ass on his resumes or like what? Like, how is he continuously going to all of these hospitals when he's been fired from all of them? I mean, I know it can happen and people get let go from their job, but like, this dude is being straight up fired for. I mean, I don't know if they could accuse him of murdering people, but they were thinking that was where things were going and he just gets a new job. I'll get into that here in just like a minute or so, because yeah. Also, while he was at Liberty Hospital, though, he caused a patient's death, but it was blamed on another nurse. But I think it was one of those where they were decided the assigned nurse just accidentally gave the wrong medication or something. I just think back to that one episode of Grey's Anatomy where Alex Karev accidentally ordered too much of a medication and it it kills the patient. Oh. You remember that episode? Yeah. Yeah, he gave them the uh, wrong concentration of saline solution and it swelled their brain and it hemorrhaged yeah i remember that one weirdly well that's season one yeah me too it's one of those that sticks with you because i mean obviously it's a fictional show like totally fictional but it does integrate things that sure actually do happen in the medical industry not i'm sure but like definitely like come on like people make mistakes but these are scary mistakes. Yeah. It, also, the actor that played the patient, I thought for the longest time, was Gilbert Gottfried. <laughs> I did too. It's not. it's not. It's like his twin. But uh, Charles Cullen, not just someone making mistakes. Nope. Murderer. After he left Liberty, Cullen was employed at Easton Hospital in Easton, Pennsylvania from November of 98 to March of 99. And on December 30th of 1998, though... He murdered another patient with digoxin. And this patient actually went to the coroner because the coroner's blood test showed lethal amounts of digoxin in the patient's blood. But the internal investigation at Easton Hospital, it was inconclusive. And the evidence did not definitively point to Colin as the murderer. So even with his history of mental instability and the number of deaths at these hospitals when he's employed there, because they're able to tag him to a lot of them right they're just not able to definitively say he murdered them god yeah that yep that's what i thought but the thing is they know but he continued to find work because this was during a huge nationwide shortage of nurses also at this time there was no reporting mechanism to identify nurses either with mental health 
problems or employment problems. And because hospitals were really concerned about liability, they were not willing to take any kind of significant action against him. And I will say, my sources mentioned the mental health issues that he faced and how those aren't being reported. I can only see both sides. I'm like, just because you're depressed doesn't mean you can't be a nurse. But I also think with his multiple stints in psychiatric hospitals, there's there doesn't seem to be any kind of like, I don't know if test is the right word or any kind of process to be like, okay, are you good to go to, you know, be ready to go back to work? Right. To see if he's fit to return to work. He just goes on his stint and then gets a job and starts work. And then goes on a stint, gets a job, goes to work. Like, this seems to be this repeating cycle, and there's not a checks and balance system in place to no. make sure he's okay. Because clearly, he is not okay. Yeah. So, in March of 1999, Colin took a job in the burn unit of Allentown's Lehigh Valley Hospital, where he murdered one patient and attempted to murder another. Just one month later, so he did that, like... Basically, first day, he's like, cool, orientation was great, signed my HR paperwork, gonna start my 401k, gonna murder some patients first. A month after he started, he resigned. He voluntarily left and took a job at a cardiac care center at St. Luke's Hospital in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. During the next three years, he murdered at least five patients and is known to have attempted to murder at least two more. On January 11th of 2000, He again attempted suicide by lighting a charcoal grill in his bathtub. What? Um, Like, like he locked himself in the bathroom, lit a charcoal grill in his bathtub, and he was trying to die by carbon monoxide poisoning. Right. But his neighbors smelled smoke, called the fire department and the police, and he was again taken to the hospital and to a psychiatric facility. But he went home the next day. While he's at St. Luke's, again, he was there for three years. Nobody suspected him of murder until a co-worker found vials of medication in a disposal bin and they were like what like what are all what's all this medication doing like all these empty medication bottles doing in the trash because they weren't drugs that were like valuable outside the hospital they weren't like used recreationally or anything Because the thing is, he's not murdering people with, like, narcotics or painkillers or anything that's, like, carefully watched. Yep. He's using these drugs that have no use outside a hospital, so no one's really keeping an eye on them. Until this co-worker finds just, like, handfuls of vials, and he's like, what the fuck? This sneaky son of a bitch. I didn't even think about that. The fact that he was using drugs that they would be untraceable as far as, like, like, the hospital's not looking... For these to be swiped. Yeah, these are not the drugs that are in, you know, a locked drug cabinet that you need to go to the, I don't know, head doctor on duty to sign off on or anything. So St. Luke's started an investigation and found that it was Colin that took the medication. And they actually gave him a deal. He could resign and be given a neutral recommendation or he could be fired. So he resigned And he was escorted out of the building in June of 2002. And several of his co-workers at St. Luke's, they were like, "Mm, no, this isn't enough. Because the hospital, well, the hospital investigator was like, oh, he he took the drugs and that's it. 
So he was fired for stealing the medication. But his coworkers are like, um, there's more. No, Bernadette, my patient, died. I think he did it. So seven of his coworkers went to the Lehigh County District Attorney with their suspicions about Cullen that he was using these drugs to kill patients. But investigators never looked into his past, and the case was dropped nine months later due to lack of evidence. They didn't go to any of the previous hospitals he worked at or anything. It's like they're and not even trying to actually catch him. The, the hospitals are just wanting to get him out of their door so they don't have to worry about it. Exactly. And the thing is, these investigators, if they looked at St. Luke's, I mean, so far... We know he murdered five people, but five deaths over three years of you working in a hospital as a nurse, like, that's not not that crazy. Yeah, that's not a red flag. So in September of 2002, he began working at the critical care unit of Somerset Medical Center in Somerville, New Jersey. Then in September of 2002, Colin began working at the critical care unit of Somerset Medical Center in Somerville, New Jersey. Colin killed at least 13 patients and attempted to kill one more by mid-2003. So in like six to nine months. Also, we're up to 2003 in this? He started in the 80s. Yeah. I am still... Like, we don't know why. Like, why is he doing this? I'll go into his motive later. And he murdered them using digoxin, insulin, and epinephrine. On June 18th of 2003, he unsuccessfully attempted to murder Philip Greger, who was a patient at Somerset, and he was later discharged. He wound up dying about six months later from natural causes, but Philip survived Cullen's murder attempt. Pretty soon after this, the hospital began to notice some shit was going down around Colin. The hospital's computer system showed that he was accessing the records of patients that he was not assigned to. He had no reason to be looking at their records. Sounds like a HIPAA violation, one. Coworkers also began seeing him in rooms of patients that he wasn't assigned to. Like, when you're in the hospital... And you have that dry erase board that's like, this is your doctor today. This is your nurse and stuff. Like, nurses are assigned to patients. You can't just be a nurse at a hospital going into rando rooms. It also sounds like the advances in technology with, like, all of these records being in the systems and on the computer is coming, like, it's catching up to him. Like, he's not able to get away with stuff like he was in the 80s when it was files. Oh, yeah, because this hospital, they also have computerized drug dispensing cabinets that basically you go to it, request the medication, flash your badge, and then get it. And they showed that he was requesting medications that none of his patients were prescribed. And his drug requests were weird. They were strange. There were a lot of orders that were immediately canceled and a lot of repetitive requests within just minutes of each other. Then in July of 2003, the executive director of the New Jersey Poison Information and Education System warned the officials at Somerset that at least four suspicious overdoses indicated that they probably had an employee at the hospital that was killing patients. But the hospital, they didn't contact authorities until October. 
By then, Cullen had killed at least five more patients and attempted to kill a sixth. In October of 2003, a patient at Somerset died of low blood sugar. And I guess that was the final straw. Because dying of low blood sugar, he overdosed them on insulin. Right. So the hospital finally alerted the New Jersey State Police. And that patient actually wound up being Cullen's final victim. They launched an investigation into his employment history and revealed these past suspicions about his involvement in patients' deaths from all his previous hospitals. I didn't count up how many when doing the research, but it sounds like at least, I don't know, 10. It's a lot, that's for sure. Somerset fired Cullen on October 31st of 2003, and their stated reason was that he lied on his job application. They didn't fire him for murdering people. They also didn't fire him for stealing drugs. I'm wondering if it was to not tip him off about the investigation. Right. They just fired him so they can continue the investigation. Yeah. Well, because now the police are investigating. The hospital's hands off. Right. A fellow nurse, Amy Loughran, she alerted police after she saw Colin's records of accessing these drugs and she linked them to these patients' deaths and she was like, Holy shit. So she went to the police, too. Police kept him under surveillance for several weeks while they finished their investigation and gathered enough evidence against him. And investigators also assigned Lofrin to visit Cullen after work hours to chat with him. You know, oh, let's grab a beer after hospital work and chat. And she was wearing a wire. From this, from what they learned, they were able to produce enough evidence for a probable cause of arrest. Good! Finally! It's about time! Cullen was finally arrested December 12th of 2003, and he was initially charged with one count of murder and one count of attempted murder. So this dude got away with it for like 20 years. Yeah. On December 14th, two days after he was arrested, he told homicide detectives that he had murdered Florian Gall and attempted to murder Jin Kyung Han. Both of those were two of his patients at Somerset. In addition, he also started telling them that he'd murdered as many as 40 patients over his 16-year career. He went to court, and in April of 2004, he pled guilty to killing 13 patients and attempting to kill two others by lethal injection while he was employed at Somerset. Just Somerset. He So he was only convicted for those at Somerset. Yeah, those 13. For now. As part of his plea agreement, he promised to cooperate with authorities if they didn't seek the death penalty for his crimes. And a month later, he pled guilty to the murder of three more patients in New Jersey. Then in November of 2004, Cullen pled guilty in an Allentown court, This so now we're in Pennsylvania, to killing six patients and trying to kill three others. So on March 2nd of 2006, Cullen was sentenced to 11 consecutive life sentences in New Jersey and is not eligible for parole until the year 2403. Oh my god. I'm surprised they even like put a year of eligibility. Uh, same. I guess I had to. Then eight days later, March 10th of 2006, he's in another courtroom, this time in Lehigh County, getting, being, like, sentencing. It's a sentencing hearing again. And Colin is upset with the judge, and he keeps repeating, Your Honor, you need to step down. For 30 
minutes. So the judge had him gagged with cloth and duct tape. And even after he was gagged, I didn't know judges could do that one. I didn't either. That Uh, does not seem okay, by the way. Nope. But even after he was gagged, he continued to try and repeat the phrase. And at this hearing, he got an additional six life sentences. And again, as part of his plea agreement, he agreed to work with law enforcement officers to identify additional victims. So right now he's in prison in Trenton, New Jersey. But let's get into the why. What what is his reasoning? He said that he administered these overdoses to patients in order to spare them from being coded or, you know, going to cardiac arrest and dying. He told the detectives that he just, he couldn't bear witness to or hear about attempts at saving a victim's life. He also stated that he gave patients overdoses so that he could end their suffering and prevent hospital personnel from dehumanizing them. Because that's what he saw, the like resuscitation attempts and all that. He saw that as like dehumanizing. And this is another part, like this is why I think his mother dying when he was in high school at the hospital and maybe seeing the resuscitation attempts, but then not being able to get her body hospital, I guess, making the decision to cremate her. I think that has a lot to do with all of this. Nothing said it did, but I'm gonna go out on a limb. Yeah, that it impacted him from a very young age. But here's the thing. Not all of his victims were terminal patients. Some of them had been expected to recover before he killed them, and many of them were already on the mend before he killed them that is what's so so messed up is it's like they weren't gonna die but he interfered and they did so like i mentioned earlier instead of using like painkillers and stimulants and narcotics which access to is very strictly regulated by hospitals because their value of street drugs totally i mean shit you could Steal a bunch of those and make hundreds of thousands of dollars, probably. I don't know. Yep. I don't either, but it sounds about right. I know you can make money. I've never sold morphine on the street, so. But you've got to imagine morphine goes for a fucking lot. It's morphine. Um, Yeah, but also imagine how much hospitals have, because I feel like, especially if you're a trauma hospital, I mean, Mm -hmm. you can't run out of morphine, let alone any other kind of painkillers. Right. Dilaudid. Let's run through all the different kinds I get when I have kidney stone. <laughs> Not morphine, though. Uh, Dilaudid's stronger than morphine. My kidney oh. stones are bad enough that they max me out and can't give me anymore, and I still feel it. Jesus. Yeah, I know. But instead, he was using drugs like digoxin and insulin, which, because they had no use really outside of hospitals, they're not going to attract attention. Right. No one's going to notice when eight vials of digoxid or insulin go missing, but they're sure as hell going to notice if that many vials of narcotics go missing. Totally. Investigators also said that Colin probably caused his patients to suffer, but that Colin probably didn't realize that. No, he probably thought he was doing a quick kill. Or a painless one. I, I think that's what he thought. Because he told investigators that he would see these patients suffering for days, and then just kind of on impulse, he'd make the decision, I'm going to murder them. In December of 2003, he told the detectives that he lived most of his life in a fog, and that he blacked out memories of murdering most of his victims. 
He told them that he really couldn't recall how many he'd killed or why he'd chosen them. Uh, In some cases, he adamantly would deny committing murders at specific hospitals. He'd be like, no, 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 I never murdered people when I worked there. But after reviewing medical records, he would admit that, yeah, yeah, I was involved in these patients' deaths. Today, Cullen is confirmed to have killed 29 victims. However, experts have estimated that Cullen may ultimately be responsible for upwards of 400 deaths which would make him the most prolific serial killer in recorded history. Jesus. That is my case. That is the murderer, Charles Cullen, the angel of death. One of the things that just is mind-boggling for angels of death is how long they are able to get away with it. Right? I mean, he got arrested in 2003, and his first murders that are known were in 1988. Like, I mean, spoiler alert, but it's my first line of my case. My angel of death got away with it for 20 years. Like, it's just, it blows my mind, and it's problematic. I mean, not getting getting caught for murder, yeah, (laughs) I would call that problematic. (laughs) Well, problematic that it's able to go on for so long, and these are... People in the medical field, people we're supposed to trust with our lives. Yeah. Yeah. I don't trust, like, I'm, you know, the neighbor three doors down with my life. I don't know if they're a murderer. I surely hope not. But you get what I'm saying. Like, I trust doctors and nurses with my life. Yeah. But the thing is, you should. Yeah. You should trust these medical professionals. And yet, I mean, some of these murderers happen. But, you know, like you said, why it's earlier how it's so difficult to prosecute a doctor or a medical professional for murder is because a lot of times it's not their fault a lot of times you know you're in the field to saving lives and sometimes you don't well and i feel like it's because of hospital liability and they don't want to be liable because sometimes death does happen and this is not right but it's easier for them to just turn a blind eye yeah. Man, I hated your case. I didn't realize there were angels of death that recent. Yeah. I mean, like, let's be real. Doctors murdering patients is terrifying. It is. Also nurses. Anyone murdering anyone is terrifying, actually. So on that note, Brittany, what is your case? Who is your angel of death? I will be talking about the serial killer Jane Toppin. The sources I used, an article from the New England Historical Society... An article from All That's Interesting by Katie Serena and the Jane Ooh. Toppin Wikipedia page. Jolly Jane Toppin killed at least 31 people between 1880 and 1901, but most likely it was a lot more. Oh, shit. Jolly. <laughs> In this 20-year period, the doctors who hired her, though, they thought that she was one of their best nurses. Today, psychiatrists say that she was one of the most unusual serial killers in history. Like many serial killers, she did have a very unstable childhood, but unlike most female serial killers, she did it for a sexual thrill, which is mostly associated with male serial killers. She got off killing people? Yes. I just don't understand that. I mean, I I know you're not supposed to kink shame people. I'm going to kink shame that. I'm gonna kink shame murder, and I'm not afraid to say it. I mean, I fucking hope not. It's fucking wrong and horrible, and like, no. 
You got issues. Yeah. As her victims would lay there dying, she got this powerful erotic charge from holding and caressing them. She was like super into them dying. Most of her victims were her patients, but there were also several that were some of her personal acquaintances. This eventually led police to determine that her motive was something more than just a fascination with the medical macabre. She said later that she aspired to have killed more people, helpless people, than any other man or woman who ever lived. So basically, Jane is fucked up. Uh, yeah. So Jane was actually born Honora Kelly around 1857 in Boston. She was the youngest of four girls in a poor Irish immigrant family. Her mother died of tuberculosis when she was just one years old. Her father, Peter Kelly, who was a tailor, had mental illness, and he was actually said to have sewn his eyelids shut. Oh, what the actual fuck? Why? I don't know. That was just a tidbit I found that I couldn't not say because that's one of the weirdest things I've ever heard. Weirdest and most fucked up things. Your eyelids. But he can still see. So he just is consistently seeing darkness. I don't know, man. So Peter tried to raise his girls, but he was definitely suspected of abusing them. In 1863, Peter took eight-year-old Delia and six-year-old Honora to an orphanage called the Boston Female Asylum in the city's south end. Yeah, I'm pretty sure, and to be totally honest, I didn't dive into that a little bit more, but I think at this time, asylum was, it's not like we think of now. Like it was, but but it's not, and like an orphan would be someone who would go to an asylum. The orphanage placed girls in respectable families when they turned 10 years old. Honora became an indentured servant to Miss Anne C. Toppin of Lowell, Massachusetts. She started to go by Jane and took the Toppin surname, and she did really well in school. She had a lot of friends, but she also was starting to display earmarks of a psychopath. She would tell very outrageous lies. Things like that her father sailed around the world. Her sister married an English nobleman. Her brother was decorated at Gettysburg by Abraham Lincoln. So just all of these things that it's like, honey, those aren't all true. Maybe one out of three, but come on. I mean, yeah, but I can also see how none of those are like big enough red flags to be like, oh, something's wrong with her. It's like, oh, she's a little lying bitch. Exactly. I mean, like, she is. She's just fucking lying, but that's not necessarily a red flag because a lot of kids lie. When she was 18 years old, Jane graduated from Lowell High School. The Toppins freed her from her indentured service and gave her $50, but she actually decided to stay in the house, and she was a servant. She did eventually leave, though, when Anne passed, And she didn't get along with Anne's daughter, Elizabeth's husband. Like, she just didn't get along. She didn't enjoy it. As soon as Anne passed, she became a servant to Elizabeth. Elizabeth got married. Things didn't really go so well. So Jane left. That's weird. Because she's sort of just like Elizabeth's adopted sister. Exactly. I mean, I guess she grew up as an indentured servant, but is basically adopted sister. And yet, her, like, service gets 
passed on to Elizabeth. That's weird. It is weird. I mean, she was released and decided to stay, though. Yeah, I just, I don't know. I guess things were different then. I feel like if I were Elizabeth, it'd be like, I mean, yeah, you can work for me. You're not, I'm not going to call you my fucking servant. You're my sister. Now let's get on AIM and talk to boys. (laughs) When Jane was 33 years old, she started her training as a nurse at Cambridge Hospital in 1887. There is where she earned this nickname, Jolly Jane, because she was very friendly, outgoing. Her personality was one that just sparkled. Everybody loved Jane. However, the hospital administration grew concerned over her obsession with autopsies. But they didn't know that she was also experimenting with morphine and atrophine on her elderly patients. Oh, not even on herself. Nope. The elderly patients. Because she didn't feel like they were worthy. She was like, they're old. They they can die. Jesus Christ. It's so fucked up. One of her patients, Amelia Finney, had an operation in 1887. Afterward, she said that Jane gave her a dose of some medicine that was really bitter. And she started to lose consciousness after that. Then Jane climbed into her bed and kissed her all over her face. But something startled Jane and she stopped. The next morning, Amelia decided, like, that was totally a dream. But 14 years later, Jane Toppin was arrested, and Amelia realized that was not a dream. Oh my god. Could you even, for a fucking second, imagine if you realized one of your worst nightmares was not a nightmare, that it was true? I mean, it would be like if you and Mama finally sat me down and were like, so, when you were three... You were chased by an escaped gorilla from the zoo (laughs) and hid by an apartment dumpster that was fenced in. And I think my world would crumble around me. Um, Also, there's a little insight into the nightmares I had as a kid. Also, though, at least your nightmare is, I mean, apologies, but realistic in the sense that gorillas exist. Mine, I mean, it's not realistic, but it- How realistic? How many people have been chased- through apartment complexes by gorillas we didn't even grow up in an apartment complex i don't even know if i knew what one was when i was three i'm just saying is it possible yes mine is there's a t-rex that's chasing me is that possible no yeah but also yours makes sense because like jurassic park and shit right i know i loved dinosaurs because they scared me I was one of those people that when something scared me, I wanted to know everything I could about it. Also, probably a little note into why I'm interested in murder, because it's fucking terrifying, and so I want to know everything I can about it. Preparation. I mean, there's there's nothing scarier than the unknown, so the more you learn about something, I feel like psychologically that is a way of conquering your fear, even if you are still scared of it. It is. The understanding and having more information around it makes it like less intangible and more like a fear you can see from all sides well and you can grasp it more because like i have done research on sharks snakes spiders the three s's that terrify me dinosaurs because of like ty was saying like jurassic park the idea of the fact that those animals existed can be scary for a child also for an adult if you imagine being face to face with them but Yeah, I've always done that. I research things that are fearful, and I'm still afraid of them, 
but I feel like I have like my tool belt. I've got my weapons. I have a little bit of knowledge behind me. And this is why we should all read books. I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah. I will say, I feel like the things I'm scared of nowadays are a lot less like a lot less tangible. It's not like, oh, I'm scared of spiders because bitch, I'll step on you. I'm not scared of you. I'm scared of like my family being hurt and I can't do anything about it. But that's also not something you can or should or ever want to learn more about to conquer. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to just step over that darkness that you just that you just laid out there and I'm going to ask you. You're telling me that you're grabbing wood out of a wood pile cuz you know, mama wants a f- to start a fire. So you go to the side of the house, you're grabbing some wood, and a fucking black widow curls out, crawls across your palm onto the piece of wood. That's not going to fucking scare you? It wouldn't. I'd clap it. It's a black widow. That bitch going to bite you while you clapping. I mean, yeah, in the way of like something suddenly being on me, but I'd probably be the same amount of scared if, like, I don't know, a squirrel jumped out and jumped onto my arm. I mean, that would like, scare me, too. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not afraid of squirrels. But I'm just saying, you would actually, like, slap it before you just drop the wood and shake your hand? I mean, I might do a, like, Ugh! and yeah. step on it, but no, I'd probably slap it if nothing was in my other hand. I'm just saying, that's some fast reflexes. I'm going to get back to my case because I actually don't like talking about Black Widows because they, they creep me out. Like, come on, they, let's kill you one bite. I, I don't want to talk about it. You know what? Here's something that might make you feel better. Most people who get bit by Black Widows don't die. Well, because there's an antidote, it can right? Kill you. If, if you go to the doctor quick enough. And it's widely available. And usually you can get to the doctor. I think it's like if you get to the doctor within like six hours. I thought you were about to say minutes and I was going to be like, <laughs> fuck no but it's one of those that like you could get bitten by a black widow be taken to like a county hospital and there's still enough time for like the major hospital in the state to send the antivenom good to know but i'm gonna get back to jane toppin okay so aside from the fact that jane would experiment on her patients she was also into a little bit of petty theft as well The doctors at Cambridge Hospital recommended her to the Massachusetts General Hospital, which was a very prestigious medical facility at the time. I mean, it still is, Mass Gen. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) it was then, it is now. And she's like, "Eh." So it's like, well, she... She says, uh, no, but so she's like stealing shit and they're like, we're going to punish you by sending you to Harvard. I know. Like literally, they obviously didn't know she was stealing stuff and experimenting on her patients. They still thought she was this fantastic nurse. And they were like, yeah, Mass Jen, you would be lucky to have her. But also, what did it take to be amazing at medicine in this time? Like... Like, truly, honestly, I want to know, because I've read a little bit of my Grey's Anatomy book, which I think was written late 1800s. And it, I mean, it actually is like, oh, okay, a lot of these make sense. But are we talking about, like, I don't know, someone has smallpox and you're like, "Mm -hmm, we should bleed them. You just let their blood drain out and give them new blood. And people are like, God, she... (laughs) She is the medical savant of our age. It's like, no, you don't do that. (laughs) 
Dude, I didn't. I don't know. I did not look I mean, into you... what was acceptable medically in the 1880s. I, I'm sorry I didn't do that deep of research. I should have asked you to borrow your Grey's Anatomy textbook. Um, and I you should have just. I would have known more. I need you to be a medical historian right now. Um, but have you seen the meme that's like medicine back in 1900? Doctor, you've got ghosts in your blood. You should do cocaine about it. <laughs> Because it's real. <laughs> no, I haven't seen it, but I can imagine it. So Jane gets to Mastion. She continues her experiments with painkillers, and she began generously handing them out to almost anyone who asked. Eventually, <laughs> she was let go from the hospital. Oh, so she was just like a doctor in the early 2000s in the United States? Well, she loses her job at Mastion, but the doctors recommended recommended her as a private nurse to all of their wealthy clients. They were like, Jane may have been a little bit too forthcoming with the drugs, but she's a great nurse. You're gonna love her. I mean, that's what the old rich people want, is they're <laughs> like, I want someone who's just gonna give me medical-grade heroin. And everyone's like, oh yeah, that's bad. But if you have money, we that's totally acceptable and fine. You know, like it is today and always has been. I mean, yeah, it's, it's pretty messed up. Jane was earning $25 a week working with these wealthy patients when a woman in this time earned an average of $5 a week. Also, like, oh. FML, come on. Yeah. Jane was free from the constraints of the hospital and the watchful eyes of her, like, co-workers, like the co-nurses and the doctors, and so she could experiment even more on patients as much as she pleased. So all this while... While Jane's doing her experimenting, she's also deciding who her victims are going to be. For the most part, she chose feeble, weak, and elderly people. She would load them up with painkillers, usually morphine or atrophine. And this was purely for the enjoyment of seeing what happened to their nervous systems. She just wanted to know. Oh my god. She also didn't want to arouse suspicions, so she would fake their charts medicate them so they would drift in and out of consciousness that way they would never remember what was happening to them then when they were just like inches from death she would go to the bed and hold them because that was again like she liked it way too much that's weird is not the right word but that's the word in my mind that's weird <laughs> really i mean fucked up and horrible yeah. at this time she also befriended her elderly landlord and his wife but then she killed them both one by one. She explained that they had gotten feeble and fussy and old and cranky. These are her first documented kills. Jesus, if you are 80 years old, I feel like you've been you've lived long enough. You're allowed to be a little cranky. Jane is like grade A bitch. She's like, mm, nasty old fogies. Kill them. Uh. In 1889, 70-year-old Mary McClear got sick on a visit to Cambridge. Her doctor sent Jane, one of his best nurses, to care for her, and Jane poisoned Mary. A month later, she killed a close friend with strychnine so she could take her job as the dining hall matron at St. John's Theological School in Cambridge. That is a career shift. It's a career shift, and Jane is literally just like, I want that job. I'm going to kill her with strychnine. She's like nurse from Mass Gen to lunch lady. 
So Elizabeth Toppin Brigham, who was Jane's foster sister, remember Elizabeth? Yeah. She would often invite Jane to come visit her and stay in the house that she grew up in. And Jane would sometimes take her up on the invitation. In the summer of 1899, Jane was vacationing when she decided to target Elizabeth. Elizabeth was depressed, and Jane invited her down to the Cape. One day, Jane took Elizabeth to the beach for a picnic of cold corned beef, taffy, and mineral water, which she had laced with strychnine. Oh, I was about to be like, that sounds amazing. Except not. That sounds like a great picnic. Just kidding, Strickland. And I mean, you're thinking what Elizabeth was because she totally went. She was excited to see her sister. Elizabeth drank the poison water and died right there on the beach in Jane's arms. Jane later recalled the incident fondly as she relayed the events to police. That is fucked up. Another fucked up thing, and I don't know if this was maybe her thought process or if i don't know it's just food at the time but like corned beef and taffy like foods you you need water after yeah you're not gonna eat some slabs of corned beef without being like (laughs) i need water yeah so shit she made sure oh she gonna drink the strychnine jane knew she would so after elizabeth died jane wanted to get in with her husband, Ormel Brigham. I she, thought she and the husband didn't get along. They didn't, but she wanted to marry him. So she was trying to find a way into the household. Jane killed the housekeeper, who was 77-year-old Edna Bannister, and took over as she tried to impress Ormel with all of her housekeeping skills. He made it clear he did not want her as a housekeeper or as a wife, like, her whole plan, it was not working because he wanted her the fuck up out of his house. He he was not he interested. Her. Yeah. I mean, he doesn't know that she killed Elizabeth, but they don't get along and he still hates her. Jane decided that she was going to win his love by poisoning him and then nursing him back to health. But that did not work. So she threatened to claim that he'd gotten her pregnant. So... Ormel is, like, pissed as all get out, and he he told Jane to get the fuck out of his house. So she's really distraught. Her plan did not work out, and so she tries to poison herself, and she was eventually hospitalized. By 1901, a Massachusetts state detective started following Jane. He suspected her of killing the entire family of Aldine Davis. So Jane had rented a cottage in Bourne from the Davis family, but she was not keeping up with the rent. Aldine Davis's wife, Maddie, came to Cambridge to collect her money, but instead, Jane killed her with a cocktail of morphine and atrophine. She then moved in with the elderly Aldine Davis to take care of him. So like, she killed the wife, it wasn't known that it was murder, and she was like, oh my god, Aldine, I will come take care of you. I am so sorry. Let me, let me help you. Jane killed Aldine and then his two married daughters, Minnie Gibbs and Geraldine Gordon. Minnie's father-in-law suspected that the sudden deaths of an entire very healthy family, something was fucking going on. This was foul play. He knew this wasn't right. Yeah. So he consulted a toxicologist, and he got a judge to order Minnie's body to be exhumed. Investigation revealed that she died of morphine and atrophine poisoning. God, I just really don't understand 
like how advanced medicine was back then. I would have never thought in 1901 a toxicology report could exist. I mean, it's one of those things that like for as much as we didn't know back then, we knew a ton. I mean, think about think back to the ancient Romans. They knew so much. A lot of the information and the technology that we have as far as like identifying things like this, that's existed for a very, very long time. It's a lot more advanced now, obviously, but there are some of these advances that are not as new as we think they are. Yeah, I guess I just, being ignorant on it, kind of assumed that, I don't know, before the 1940s, probably, you poison someone and people like, they died of a heart attack. But clearly, no. No, there's still coroners. There's still, like, investigations that can go on and you can get caught. Police arrested Jane in Amherst on October 29th, 1901. Jane went to trial for murder in the summer of 1902. She confessed to her lawyer that she killed at least 31 people, but perhaps as many as 100. Which I'm thinking, honey, that's a scale. Uh, yeah, she's like, I don't know, 30, 40, 50, 100, hmm. Somewhere in between. She claimed that she started her killing spree because a boyfriend dumped her when she was 16 years old. He was an office worker who gave her a promise ring, but then moved to Massachusetts and fell in love with someone else. And so Jane said, if I had been a married woman, I probably would not have killed all these people. I would have had my husband, my children, and my home to take up my mind. Jane, what the fuck? Okay, but what about your burgeoning medical career? That Did that not take up your mind? <laughs> No, pretty sure you would have been murdering people left and right if you were married. That's the thing. Like, Jane had mental illness. Like, girl was a messed up. So I don't believe her saying like, well, if I had a husband and kids, I wouldn't have done what I did. No, I don't agree. No, you're lying to yourself. No. I mean, it sounds like the kind of person that she might have murdered her children for attention kind of shit. Yeah. Word started to spread about her trial, and patients from Cambridge started to come forward, saying that they were having memories that were coming about of being drugged by Jane, and that she had climbed on top of them during their hospital stays. It was then that Jane revealed that she got sexual pleasure from watching them hover close to death. So these people are coming forward being like, Actually, yeah, the morphine haze, I had a dream. She was on top of me and she's like, yeah, I was horny. Pretty much. She definitely poisoned multiple patients at Cambridge, but she did not admit to killing any of them. An eight-hour trial took place in Barnstable County Courthouse. A jury deliberated for 27 minutes and found Jane Toppin not guilty by reason of insanity and she was sent to Teuton State Hospital, where she spent the rest of her life, dying on August 17, 1938. Though she was in the asylum, it was very clear that her murderous tendencies never really went away. For years, nurses in the asylum would hear her calling down the halls, threatening to kill again. Oh my god. I mean, I will say... We've talked about the insanity defense and how it really hinges on someone truly not understanding what they're doing is wrong. And it, I mean, it kind of sounds like 
that really does fit. She doesn't seem to feel like what she's done is wrong from looking back longingly about or fondly about murdering her sister to even when them coming forward, her being like, yeah, I was horny. What? Yeah. Like it, it honestly, the insanity defense makes sense. She's a sociopath. She has no emotions. She's not feeling bad about any of this. She's getting a rise out of it. And all the while, because she was convincing people that she was the best nurse. She had this fantastic personality. People loved her. Yet she's actually testing out different narcotics and drugs on people, killing them. She's stealing things. She also just did a lot of things in her personal life that were extremely questionable with no regrets. Like, she didn't care about anything. Yet people thought she was amazing. And they were referring her to different hospitals and referring her to the wealthy. Like, Jane will take care of you. No, bitch, Jane's going to kill you. She is going to kill you. She's going to kill your daughters. She is going to just kill. That's all she does. Yeah. So... That's about serial killer, Angela Death, Jane Toppin. Shit. <laughs> right? She's intense AF. And I heard this case a few years ago, and I'm honestly surprised it's taken me this long to do it on the podcast. Yeah. Well, because also, I think it's really interesting that, you know, female serial killers, by and large, are a lot more inclined to poison as opposed True. to men. But, like, the way she killed and stuff is just so stereotypically serial killer. People got in her way, she killed them. She wanted to move up, she wanted this job, she killed them. And I'm like, it's another one of those things that I feel like the developed definition of serial killer and profile is very male-leaning and has that, like, I mean, developed through the patriarchy. Because I feel like if you really added in cases like Jane's, like that, that, you know, it's a lot less male focused. There's definitely a lot of female serial killers, probably more than we realize, but it is still definitely a male dominated thing. Angels of Death, man. What I mentioned earlier, after your case, it still just blows my mind how long they're able to get away with this. Yeah. Well, and bringing it all back to Catherine's case, I mean, both our cases were very different from hers very. because hers is this father in his mind, you know, saving and protecting his daughter through killing her, which is not a mindset I agree with. It's also a mindset I've never had to face in any way, but not one that I agree with. It's still murder. These cases, this, the, we, they were just murderers. They were just murderers. Well, at the end, these cases and this topic, intense. So intense. This is crazy. The amount of years they get away with it, how difficult it is to pinpoint, how to pin it down. Charles and Jane were murderers, serial killers. Yeah. Angels of death. Yeah. Well, again, Thank y'all so, so much for tuning in, for sticking with us for these three years through 150 episodes so far. Thank y'all so much. And we're excited, nervous, sad, just all the emotions about about two weeks from now with our last episode. And we look forward to joining you guys there. and, And we can't wait for you guys to tune in and 
We love you so much. We do. I I don't have the words to express how amazing this entire experience has there been. There are no words. And there there's none. But I am so excited for our next episode. Um it's two cases that Brittany and I have have been wanting to do for a long time. Yes. And I think they're the perfect ones to be the bookend to the podcast. Yeah. We're, we started with our favorite serial killers, my favorite murderer. And now we're closing with cases that we've had in our minds this entire time. It really is the first episode and this last episode, next episode, are the cases that are... I mean, I feel like the reason why we decided to create a podcast is what we're bookending it with. You're exactly right. That's what we're doing. So again, thank you all so much. And not yet the last time, but the penultimate time. This is Blood and Wine signing off. XOXO. Bye, you guys. Bye.